Well, this morning we return to the Gospel of Luke, so you can get there. So we're trying to finish before I turn 55. Sure, seven or eight years from now, we'll have her done, I think. There are billions in this world who simply refuse to believe the gospel. They reject the one true God in Christ for many reasons. If, you know, you were to ask them, there's just more reasons than you can count. But if you put all those reasons into a big pot and boiled them down, uh, you would have three ingredients. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. People just don't want to come to God. They don't want God telling them what to do. That's where it boils down to. They want their sin. They want their lusts fed. And they certainly don't want some God ordering their life. They're in rebellion. Charles Spurgeon, in a sermon entitled Instability, speaks of those who have not placed their faith in Christ and make no profession of placing their faith in Christ. In fact, they excuse their rebellion against God by admitting they make no profession of religion. And Spurgeon writes, quote, I have heard hundreds of persons in my short life excuse their sin by saying, well, I make no profession. And I've always thought it one of the strangest excuses, one of the most wild vagaries of apology to which the human mind could ever make resort. Take an illustration which I have used before. Tomorrow morning, when the Lord Mayor is sitting, there are two men brought up before him for robbery. One of them says he is not guilty. He declares that he is a good character. And he is an honest man in general, though he was guilty in this case. He is punished. The the other one says, well, your worship, I make no profession. I am a downright thorough thief. And I don't make any profession of being honest at all. Why? You can suppose how much more severe the sentence would be upon such a man. Spurgeon goes on to say, I cannot imagine you urging such a plea as that when God shall judge you. My Lord, I made no profession. What? Saith the king? Did my subject make no profession of obedience? O Lord, I make no profession. What? Saith the creator? Make no profession of acknowledging my rights? I made no profession of religion. What? Saith the judge, did I send my son into the world to die? And did this man make no profession of casting his soul upon him? What? Did he make no profession of his need of mercy? Then he shall have none. Does he dare tell me to my face that he never made a profession of faith in Christ and never had anything to do with the Savior? Then insomuch as he despised my son and despised his cross and rejected his salvation, let him die the death. And what that death is with its everlasting wailings and gnashing of teeth, eternity alone can tell, end quote. There are many in this world who make no profession of Christ. Well, this morning we return to our study of Luke. And the last time we were in Luke... We learned of some people who would not believe in Christ. Jesus compares them to capricious children who are in the marketplace. And some of the children call out to the other children and say, hey, let's sing a happy song and dance. They say, no, 
And then the children say, okay, let's sing a sad song and weep. They say, no. And Jesus says, John the Baptist came in coarse clothing, living in the wilderness, eating locusts and honey. And you say he has a demon. The son of man comes. And he lives a normal Jewish life and he is celebrating the festivals along with all the other Jews and eating and drinking. And they say, behold, a drunkard, a glutton, a tax collector, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And they still would not believe. They made no profession of faith in Christ. They just would not believe him. But even among those who do make a profession of faith in Christ. And there are millions in the United States who do. The bulk of Americans call themselves Christians. There are few who really love Christ, who really have received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They are willing to profess to know Christ, but they are not willing to live for him. They do not love his word. They do not love his people. They do not love his holiness and his justice. To them, Jesus is nothing more than a fire escape that they can use whenever they're having problems in their life. He is the cosmic vending machine that gives them whatever they want, whenever they want it. He is the get out of hell free card, which they hope to cash in on the last day. But he is not their love and he is not their life. He is not their reason and passion for living. And do you suppose that Jesus will welcome such rebels into his arms and say, come enter the joy of my kingdom? Think again. Be not deceived. Christ's sheep hear his voice and they follow him. And he gives to them. And only them eternal life. Hear this profession without loving obedience and submission to Christ is hypocrisy, rejection and unbelief. If you say you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you don't follow Jesus Christ, that is hypocrisy and rebellion. The title of our last sermon in Luke was Stubborn, Unrepentant Sinners Who Hate. The title of this morning's sermon is Humble, Repentant Sinners Who Love. And you will see in the text before us such a stark contrast between stubborn, unrepentant sinners who hate and humble, repentant sinners who love. Our text this morning is Luke seven thirty-six through 50. And since the text is lengthy and our time is short, we're not going to read the text, but we will read it as we move through the passage. And from this text, we're going to ask three questions, three questions to help you discern your standing before God, your relationship to others, and whether or not you love God much or little. The first point is this. Are you a great moralist or a great sinner? Look at verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees, stop there. I think most of us know who the Pharisees were. One of the most strict and rigid Jewish sects of the day. Fanatics 
in studying, memorizing, and trying to keep the Old Testament law. Not only that, they added a whole bunch of traditions on top of the law that they tried to keep fanatically. The problem with the Pharisees, though, is that they missed the whole purpose for obeying the law. They forgot that the law was given so that those who loved God could express their love to God. Law is a way we show love to God. We love God by keeping his commandments. And yet they totally missed it. Somewhere along the line, they thought, I've got to be good so God will like me, so God will accept me, so I can be justified in his sight, so I can earn my salvation. Out of a desire to be justified before God to earn their salvation, they did what was right. But not only that, they also did obey the law to be seen by other men. They're very, very conscious of people observing them. They did things to be seen by men. They had fallen into the false and damning doctrine that man can be justified or made right before God by works. And they paraded their righteous deeds in public public whenever they could to get glory for themselves. And they were very concerned about uh, public appearances, so concerned, in fact, they were very careful not to do anything to hurt their, quote, religious reputation. Keep this in mind. Look at the text again. Verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him that is Jesus to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, by this time, Jesus has offended the Pharisees. (laughs) I mean, he's called them hypocrites. He said, you violate the law of God in order to keep your traditions. He's called himself God. He's called himself the Messiah. And he's forgiven sins right in front of him, which is, you know, sent him through the roof. He's at odds with these people. And now all of a sudden this guy, why don't you come over to my house for dinner? And you wonder what's going on here. Well, the Pharisee is obviously making a pretense. He's pretending. This Pharisee was cunning. He was scheming. He was looking for some bit of information he could use against Jesus. And as we move down through the text, we'll find out there's more than one. It's just that this one is focused. His name is Simon, as we shall learn in a bit. Look at verse 37. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. You know, to stop there. A sinner, that term, uh, to call somebody a sinner means that somebody, uh, is by reputation a very immoral and wicked person. This woman, Surely was a fornicator, an idolater, uh, an adulterer, uh, you know, an immoral woman, a prostitute who made her living by increasing the faithless among men. She is the woman that Solomon describes in Ecclesiastes 7.26 when he says, I discovered more bitter than death, a woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. The one who is pleasing to God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. Proverbs describes this kind of woman as the hunter, the killer, the destroyer of men's lives, whose house lies in the depths of Sheol and descends to the chambers of death. This woman was a sinner, and everybody knew it. Look in the middle of verse 37. 
And when she learned that he, that is Jesus, was reclining at the table of the Pharisee, in the Pharisee's house, she bought an alabaster vial of perfume. Now, just so you know, this incident is only recorded here in Luke. There's a similar incident that happened when Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, bought a vial of perfume and anointed Jesus' head right before he was crucified. This incident happens way before that in Jesus' ministry. But Mark 14 does give us a little bit of information, even though it's a totally separate account, that a vial of perfume like the one this woman bought cost 300 denarii. And you're thinking, what's a denarii? A whole day's wages. In other words, the woman spent an entire year's worth of wages on a small bottle of perfume. Think about that. I don't know how much you who work make a year. 40, 50, 60, 70, 100,000. Think, think, think of going down there and say, yeah, I have that perfume. How much is it? It's 100,000. 100,000 what? <laughs> Dollars. Okay. Could you imagine paying that much? That is, that's insane. Who pays that much for perfume? I mean, I have a hard time spending 40 or 50 bucks on perfume when I go to get some for my wife. Well, on a whole year's worth of wages. And what is amazing is that no one told this woman to do this. There was no precedent. No one said, you know what? When you come to the place in your life when you realize you're a sinner and you meet the Messiah and you repent of your sins, this is how you should worship him. Go down, take a whole year's wages, probably all of your saving, and go buy a vial of perfume. That, that is kind of strange, isn't it? But this is what's neat about new believers. They don't know what's you know normal. They, they don't know what's traditional. They don't know what's the right thing to do. All they know is, I found God, I love Christ, and I just want to just serve him. I just want to give to him. And we see in this woman's actions, her, her desire to just give Jesus something great. And since she is a prostitute, an immoral woman, the thing that she thinks is great is really expensive perfume, which she probably only smelled before and couldn't ever afford. And she's going to get some for Jesus, and she does. She buys a vial of perfume. I think we're all familiar with the Christmas story of the little drummer boy. He was poor. He had nothing but this little drum. And so when he came to Jesus, what did he do? He played a tune. That's all he had. You know, here, here's the tune. Well, you know, tune on the drum doesn't seem like a very orthodox gift. But, you know, it was for that little boy. And a vial of perfume was for this woman. Have you ever thought what you could do for God if you didn't have to work so much? If you had more money... If you were more gifted, if you had a seminary education, if you came to Christ earlier in life, if you would have grown up in a Christian home, it's common for people to think like this, to imagine and long for what isn't and what will never be. To give those hours in service, you don't have to give. To donate those millions, you don't have in the bank. To study in seminary when you can't. 
To come to Christ at an earlier age when you never will. To grow up in a Christian home when it's too late. You've already grown up and it wasn't a Christian home. You know how philanthropic and generous we are with the things that are not and will never be. But the things that are, the things that we do have, we cling to those with white knuckles. We're not going to give those the law. I want that. That's good. We would rather sacrifice dreams and myths and non-realities to God because they don't cost us anything. Kind of conjure up if I did this, I'd really do this for you, God. God wants you to give what you do have, not what you don't have. He wants you to sacrifice what is, not what is not. Then I'm sure the immoral woman in our story pondered what she might give to Jesus. I mean, what does an immoral woman like this give to you know the Messiah? Uh, what do you do? You know, it's like, okay, I'm an immoral woman. I'm a sinner. What do I give? What do I give? You know, I mean, I don't have anything. My reputation's shot. You know, what do you do? And so she thought to herself, you know what? What I, what I think would be great is to give him some perfume. Some of the costliest perfume that money could buy. And I'm sure she just emptied her savings, went out and bought this vial of perfume. So that she could anoint Jesus's feet with it. Contrast this with some of the things people give to God, the crumbs and leftovers of their life and the years of ministry. I've seen people show up and Donate things like broken VCRs to the church, broken TVs, broken pinball machines, broken cars, broken lawnmowers. What is that? I say, I always feel like saying, hey, 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 what's, what are you doing here? You know, I mean, we're not the dump. Oh, yeah, but, you know, you, you spend a little time, put a little money into this, you know, take it to a repair place. They can fix it up and, and uh, you know, you can use it. I always want to say, no, why don't you take it? And you expend a little effort and you pay the money and you get it fixed and you use it and buy the church a new one. <laughs> Give to the Lord the best. And so as soon as they leave, we pitch in the dumpster. We pay to have their stuff taken away. We are so ready and so willing to sacrifice for our own pleasure, for what we want, but often so hesitant to give deeply to the Lord. And this immoral woman in the text before us is willing to sacrifice the very best she could afford, the very best money could buy. Do you ever do that? Have you ever done that? Look at verse 38 and standing behind him. All of a sudden she's in the house. Now she finds out he's at the Pharisee's house. And of course, Pharisees hated women like this. They would not look at them. They would rebuke them. They were scorned, rejected. And this woman all of a sudden walks right into the Pharisee's house uninvited. That took some courage. And standing behind him, that is Jesus, at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with her hair. 
of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now, just think about this. This woman marches right. and She's got courage. She is so in love with Christ. I don't know how she came to the conclusion that he was the Messiah, but she came to that conclusion. And she just goes right into this house, this Pharisee's house, knowing that this Pharisee is going to despise her along with all of his Pharisaical friends. And she goes right up behind Jesus. Now keep in mind at that time in the ancient Near East, they they would dine at low tables and they would put mats and cushions around those tables. And so the men would be go up to the table and lean next to the table with their head pointing towards the table, leaning on usually their left elbow and they would eat with their right hand. And so their feet would all be sticking out, radiating from the table. The woman enters into the house uninvited, walks up before Jesus, and she bends down because she's got some perfume, the best perfume that money could buy, and she's going to anoint his feet with it. And she starts crying. She starts sobbing. She is so broken over her sin And sorrowing in repentance and remorse for what she has done. That her tears are falling down on Jesus' feet. And now, because Jesus' feet are dirty, it's causing dirt stains. And realizing she's making a mess of Jesus' feet instead of anointing him. She thinks to herself, I've got to clean this up. But she doesn't have a towel. I mean, it's not her house. And then she does something else, very unorthodox. Something Jewish women never did. And she undoes her hair and lets her hair down in front of the Pharisees. That was like, whoa, what is this woman doing? And she begins to wipe Jesus's feet with her glory, the glory of her hair. Even though it was improper in that culture and even though it wouldn't be accepted among the Pharisees. She did it, and after wiping Jesus' feet with her tresses, she anoints them with the most expensive perfume that money could buy. And in doing this, she showed extreme humility. She used her hair. I I mean, I've, you know, been alive for a while. I've never seen a woman, you know, see a spill and do this. (laughs) Ever. Ever. This woman did. This woman did. A person's feet were considered the dirtiest part of the body. And that is why the lowliest of slaves were asked to wash people's feet. This woman did it with her tears in her hair. And what do you think the Pharisees thought of this? Well, look at verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him. But she is a sinner. The Pharisee being self-righteous missed the whole beauty and marvel of the moment. He did not consider that it took courage for the woman to enter his house. 
All he knew is women like this were scorned to be rejected, to be ignored. They were a blight in culture. And this Pharisee was blind to the miracle that was happening right before his eyes. Because he himself was spiritually dead as a post. Very religious, but dead. He did not see her humility. He did not see her repentance, her sacrifice. He only saw a sinner. A sinner who entered his house uninvited that should have been shooed away and rejected. There are people like this woman in every church, babes in Christ. They haven't cleaned up their language. They haven't cleaned up their life. They do things that, you know, aren't quite right. They're like rough sawn lumber, kind of prickly, splinters. But they love God. All they know is, is they were lost and now they're found. They were blind, but now they see. And in every church, there are also these moralists, people who have been Christians so long, they can't remember when they came to Christ. And the reason they can't remember is because they never did. And they look at these great sinners with disdain. Look how they dress. Listen to how they speak. Look what they do. And what they're really saying is, is if the rest of the church was really saved, they would see what a great sinner this person is and they would stay away from them. And instead of helping them, they are very censorious and reject people like this and stay away from them. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to say that we should tolerate sin in the body of Christ. But what I am talking about is that we need to praise God for every sinner who repents. What I'm talking about is rejoicing that God, by his grace, rescues somebody from the consequences of their sin. I'm talking about being patient with those who are growing in Christ. I mean, think about it. Look back at your life. Think back to when you came to Christ. Were you saved one day and completely sanctified the next? Are you perfectly holy even today? Did your speech instantly become like pure water from a fountain and your hands and deeds just become instantly clean like the pure driven snow and the moment you gave your life to Christ, all the sin in your life just vanished away immediately? We know the answer to that. Of course not. You were like this woman. That's who you were like. You loved God, but you didn't know much. That's why the scriptures call people like this babes in Christ. Babes in Christ are rough. They're coarse. They're unsanctified. They haven't grown in the Lord much. They don't know very much. They're trying to figure it out. They don't need beat up and rejected. They need people to come alongside them and say, hey, let me explain to you the scriptures here. And let me tell you about what the Bible says about this. And let me tell you what God expects here. 
Every one of us is totally depraved. Every one of us is a sinner through and through. Every one of us deserves the eternal fires of hell. Every one of us. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. There is none righteous, not even one. All of us contend with fleshly desires every single day. And if you say you aren't, then you're lying. Every one of us needs to cry out like the apostle Paul, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? If you have a hard time tolerating others who are less mature or a little coarser than you are, you need to look into the mirror and you need to sit there and ponder the magnitude of your guilt before God. All the sins that you have committed both secretly in your heart and outwardly with your hands. You need to do what the Puritans encourage their people to do. And that is to meditate on your sinfulness. Do you know why? Because when you meditate on your sinfulness and you understand what a great sinner you are, it makes you humble and it makes you patient and kind and gracious and merciful to other sinners who understand they are great sinners too. So this story asks you, are you a great moralist or a great sinner? Only great sinners will find mercy and grace from God. All who are godly and who are righteous, they need no repentance and they find no salvation. Secondly, do you love the Lord little or much? Look at verse 40. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. Notice that in the preceding verse, verse 39, it says that the Pharisee said to himself. This is interesting because the Pharisee is thinking to himself, if this man was a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is. Verse 40 says, Jesus answered him. Gives us a little glimpse here into Jesus' omniscience. Jesus knew what this man was thinking. He answered his thought. And the Pharisee, with false humility, invited Jesus to instruct him. Say it, teacher. Listen. Pharisees prided themselves on their knowledge of the Bible. On their expertise In the law of God. Was this carpenter. This false prophet. Going to instruct him. Again. In false humility. He says. Oh. Go ahead. Say it teacher. Teach me. Remember he was. Having a problem with this woman. Who is right now at Jesus' feet. Weeping and crying. Over her sin and wiping Jesus' feet with her hair and anointing his feet with oil. So he says, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, try and teach me something. Look at verse 41. So Jesus begins to lower the boom. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. And when they were unable to pay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Here's the Pharisee's name, Simon, answered and said, I suppose 
the one he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. The Pharisee was surely thinking to himself, oh, that was profound. Uh, That's heavy. What's that have to do with this woman? He's probably thinking Jesus is talking to him about finances. So that that's out of the blue. You know, what's this tool? Money lending thing. He's totally blind. He has no idea what Jesus is talking about. And many Christians forget that an unbeliever, even a very religious unbeliever, cannot understand the things of God for they are spiritually appraised and they are foolishness to him. First Corinthians two fourteen. You can't understand the things of God if you don't have the Spirit of God abiding in you, illuminating your heart to the truth of God's Word. Do you remember what Jesus prayed in Matthew eleven twenty five and 26? Let me remind you. He prayed this, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent, speaking of the religious leaders, and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. The religious leaders totally missed it. They had no idea what Jesus was talking about. A couple chapters later, Matthew 13, the disciples specifically asked Jesus why he speaks in parables. I mean, those disciples are thinking to themselves, why the parable thing? They're so cryptic. They're so hard to understand. I mean, we can't even understand them. Why don't you just say it outright? Just tell us, you know, why this, there was a certain man. They're wondering, well, why, why are you doing this? And this is Jesus' answer to them. Matthew thirteen eleven. to you, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, it has not been granted. Understanding God's word is a gift of his grace. And God at times withholds this gift from those who harden their heart and refuse to believe in Mark's account, in Mark 4, 11 and 12, Mark writes this. And he was saying to them, to you it has been given the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, they get everything in parables. So that while seeing, they may see and not perceive. And while hearing, they may hear or not understand. Otherwise, they might return or repent and be forgiven. It was a judgment. Then in verse 34 of Mark 4, Mark goes on to say, and he did not speak to them Without a parable. But he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. Even though the disciples weren't getting it all. Jesus pulled him aside and he'd explain everything to the disciples. So that those with hard hearts would stay in the dark. And you may be sitting out there thinking to yourself. Well what does the parable of the two debtors mean? And if you don't know. I'm afraid you're probably in the same place as Simon the Pharisee. It is probably one of the easiest parables in the New Testament to interpret. The man who owed 500 denarii represents the woman at Jesus' feet. She had sinned openly and fragrantly all of her life. And her flagrant disregard for God mounted up a huge debt against her. 
The debtor in the parable who owed 50 denarii represents the Pharisee who lived a moral life and he was a pretty good guy. The money lender represents Jesus who by his grace can forgive those of a great debt or a small debt. And Jesus' point is that the immoral woman being a great sinner after having her debt forgiven will love Jesus all the more. The Pharisee, of course, seeing himself as a good guy, a righteous guy, a guy who owes little, if forgiven, he he would love little. And so the question you need to ask yourself is this. If you are a great sinner, do you love God much? Do you live like you love God much? Do you worship like you love God much? Do you serve like you love God much? And if you do love God much, is it visible in your life? Could your love for God fit into the thimble? Or will the oceans not contain it? And if you realize that your love for God is small and it is anemic, it's very pathetic, what is the cure? This is the cure. Go back to the previous question. Do you see yourself as a great sinner? If you understand what a sinner you are, if you understand what judgment is waiting for sinners, And how God in perfect holiness and justice must punish every sinner. And you understand the great mountain of wrath that is ready to fall upon you. That you have earned by your own rebellion against God. And you realize that through faith in Christ that is all taken away. I don't know what else could make you love God but that. And it may be. That the reason you don't love God much is because you don't see yourself as a great sinner or you don't remind yourself of that. Do you see yourself like Jeremiah describes all men as desperately sick and deceitful above all else? Do you see yourself as David cried out against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight or Like Paul who described himself as the chief of sinners or like Peter in the boat who said, Lord, depart from me for I am a sinful man. Is that how you see yourself or do you see yourself as a good person? I'm a good person. God doesn't save good persons. He came to justify the ungodly. He came to die for his enemies. Jesus came to heal the spiritually sick. And if you're a good person... You're not the kind of person that God saves. I find it ironic and humorous and sad when I talk to those who profess that they are sinners. You can go up to your average professing Christian and say, are are you a sinner? They say, oh yeah, I'm a sinner. Sinners saved by grace. Oh, I have something to talk to you about. Some sin in your life. And you see their countenance change, their jaw clenched. Who are you to talk to me about my sin? Who are you to judge me? I thought you just said you're a sinner. Whoa. There are many who will admit in false humility that they are great sinners, but there are few who truly believe and know it to be true. 
You come to somebody who really knows they're a great sinner and say, hey, brother, you know, sister, there's something in your life here I'm seeing. And they say, huh, you're right. And you don't know the half of it. I'm a much greater sinner than you would ever know. But thank you for pointing that out. Pray for me. I need it. Every one of us is so saturated and so marinated and soaked to the bone in sin that only an omnipotent God can endure to look upon our wicked heart. But when God, by his grace, crushes you and reveals the great magnitude of your sins and humbles you to the dust, like this woman in the text before us, and you come crawling and weeping to God in tears of repentance and remorse, he saves you. He blots out all of your iniquity. He cancels out the certificate of debt and nails it to the cross. And you are saved. You are forgiven. And realizing that you are saved and forgiven, it should motivate you to love God much because your sins are great. And this leads us to our final point. Three, have you humbled yourself before Christ and receive forgiveness and salvation? Look at verse 44. I love this. Turning toward the woman, he's at the table, they're eating. Turning towards the woman, in other words, he's bending down, he's looking down at his feet, he's lying on his side, but he's looking at his feet. The woman's at his feet crying, wiping his feet with her hair, anointing them with oil. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I like that. I like that. The whole room at this time would be filled with the fragrance of the most costly perfume. Jesus looks at Simon. No, he does not look at Simon. He looks at the woman and speaks to Simon. Why? Because Simon would never look at a woman like this. Oh, I'm not turning my eyes in that direction. This is an immoral woman. You don't expect me to look at a woman like that. So all the Pharisees are at the table staring at the ceiling. (laughs) He didn't want to look at the woman. She was a sinner. She was uninvited. She was uninterrupting his time with Jesus. She was endangering his reputation. She was an emotional mess. She was unclean. No, he did not want to look at the woman. But Jesus says, Simon... Do you see this woman? And Jesus bends the Pharisee's eyes down to gaze upon this humble sinner and look at the middle of verse 44. And now he drops the hammer. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she... Since the time I came in has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. And I am sure that these words cut deep even to this hard-hearted Pharisee. What could he say? He did not even extend the basic niceties to Jesus when he came in. He didn't wash Jesus' feet. He didn't have a servant wash Jesus' feet. He didn't even give Jesus water to wash his own feet. 
The Pharisee did not give Jesus the custom kiss on the cheek that friends always gave back then when they entered them with a, entered in their house with a warm greeting. The Pharisee did not offer any olive oil to anoint Jesus' head or feet. Of course, he didn't spend a whole year's of wages on a bottle of perfume either. And Jesus' words probably just was like a blow from a hammer. What could he say? Jesus was right. He wasn't loving Jesus. But Jesus wasn't finished. Look at verse 47. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And oh, that would have been a two-edged sword to that Pharisee. Because he knew it was true. And all the while, Jesus is speaking towards the woman, but at Simon. So she has just heard from the Messiah's mouth that she is forgiven. The woman loved much for her sins were many. The Pharisee, on the other hand, loved Jesus little for he thought he was righteous. The woman that had been branded a sinner and was to be shunned by the Pharisees, Jesus now says, this woman is totally forgiven. And she is the one who is loving me, not you. Look at verse 48. Then he said to her, now he has stopped speaking to Simon. He directs these words to her. Your sins have been forgiven. And those who were reclining at the table with him began saying to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sin? Notice those who were reclining at the table, probably Simon the Pharisee and maybe some of his Pharisee buddies. And they're, oh, blasphemy. He said he could forgive sins. They were all having their hearts pounded by the truth. And notice they were all saying to themselves, a lot of things are not being spoken here. They were cowards. They wouldn't speak to Jesus to his face. What cowards like to do is they like to talk to, about other people behind their back, complain behind their back. They never go to the person, but they talk to each other behind their back. And that is what they were planning on doing here. They were saying to themselves, blasphemy. And as soon as Jesus would leave the Pharisee's house, they would all gather together and grumble and murmur and complain and get themselves all worked up on how wicked and base of fellow Jesus was to the point where they all wanted to kill him. And they did. Instead of asking Jesus teacher, isn't it true that only God can get forgive sins and to let Jesus explain? They just assumed Jesus was wrong. Never asked him and bitterness and anger welled up within them. Look at verse 50. And he said to the woman, woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And at this, the woman must have been just overflowing with joy. Her sins were forgiven. Jesus just said, you've been saved. She knew she was going to make it to heaven. She knew her sins were washed white as snow. And she probably just left praising and rejoicing that God had saved her that day. So what have we learned from this text? One, what are you giving to God? The crumbs, the leftovers, or are you sacrificing the best you have to give to God. 
Secondly, do you see yourself as a great sinner or as a pretty good moral person? Jesus only came to justify the ungodly, to heal the sick. He doesn't need to save a righteous person. Only great sinners. You see, there are only two kinds of people in the world. Great sinners who know it and great sinners who don't. Which one are you? Compared to God, as the Apostle Paul says, there is none righteous. No, not even one. That's you and that's me. Finally, do you love Christ little or much? You know, when you go through life and, yeah, you're just a Christian, you don't get into God's word. A lot of people say things when they read the Bible. There's just so much about sin there. There's so much about sin there. Why? Because sin, the knowledge of sin is what fuels our love for God. Until you understand what a great sinner you are, you will never understand what a great Savior Jesus is. Until you understand the magnitude of your sin and the judgment you deserve, you can never appreciate the grace and mercy and compassion of God, which you do not deserve. But when you understand those, quote, negative things, you then understand the positive things all the more and it endears you to God. It makes you love God. There are people in this congregation and you know who they are who walk around just glowing with happiness. Why? Because they know they're great sinners. They know it. And they're so thankful to God that they've been saved from the hellish life they lived here on earth that they just love God. They love God. And all of us need to be there. All of us need to be like this woman. If you haven't come to the place in your life where you see yourself as a great sinner and you haven't come to Christ realizing that only he can save you, you need to do that today. So that you can leave like this woman left from that dinner rejoicing that you have been saved. Francis Ridley Havergal wrote, Nothing to pay. Yes, nothing to pay. Jesus has cleared all the debt away, blotted it out with his bleeding hand, free and forgiven and loved you stand. Hear the voice of Jesus say, verily thou hast nothing to pay. Paid is the debt and the debtor free. Now I ask thee, lovest thou me? We know what Christ did for us. The question is, what are you now doing in response? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this great story. What a blessing it is to look at your word, to see stories like this that teach us important truths about the need to give to you our very best, not the leftovers, the first fruits, the best of our crop, the most expensive perfume. And Father, I pray that if there's anybody here who has never come to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, that right now in their heart, they would be broken. They would be broken over their sin, broken over their rebellion, broken over their need for a savior. And Father, they would cry out to you in humble repentance and you would save them and forgive them and wash them whiter than snow. Make them new creatures. Bring them into the body of Christ as babes that they might grow and be nurtured here and to a mature Christian man or woman. Father, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.